All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana. And I'm Kristen. And we are really looking forward to talking about this particular movie. This particular movie is my all-time favorite Absolutely. of all time. It Absolutely. is like, for what Jaws is for you, this is my Jaws. Believe me, I understand that more than I think most people realize. Like, I completely get that. So, we're going to be talking about true romance today. And what's interesting is, when we met a few months ago, you know, we quickly became friends. We we had this friendship that was quickly building around movies. And we were kicking around ideas of, you know, different episodes, different things to try. And one of the things we talked about was, you know, what are Desert Island picks for you? Like, what are three movies that, you know, if you are stranded on a desert island by yourself... What were the three movies that you would go with? And what was interesting is both you and I, without even going over like our selections, were both like, yeah, well, True Romance is definitely one of those movies. Of course it is, Dana. It has everything. I mean, if there was a, there's not a more perfect movie as far as having a little bit of every possible thing and genre from the romance, of course, by the name. And then there's the pop culture, but there's also some very sexy love scenes. And then there's also the crazy violence and the chases and the it's just it's got it all. This movie has it all. And what another thing that I found was really interesting is after we saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and, and by the way, Thank you again for doing that episode with me. Talk about getting a great response. Like it is, I've had more people reach out to me because of that episode than a lot of episodes I've done over the past few wow. years. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, I just, it was fun to talk to you about. I mean, it's always fun to talk to you about movies, but that was definitely a fun experience overall because, you know, we hadn't had a chance to talk about it at all beforehand and that made it really fun for me. And what I liked about that is after the conversation was over, after the episode was posted, you and I were talking on the phone and I'm just kind of sharing with you sort of the response that the episode's getting. And we're like, well, we have to explore the idea of looking at every Quentin Tarantino film. I mean, I don't mean like one every week, but, you know, over the, you know, the conceivable next little bit. It would be a fun thing to, to try, maybe. What I really like about us doing this right now is that I got an opportunity to, to rewatch the movie, of course, and I've seen it a lot. I want to say hundreds, it might be more, <laughs> but a lot. And to rewatch it, it always just puts me in such a happy place. To watch a movie that I love so much and have it be something I get to sit here and talk to you about made watching it again that much better. Absolutely. And I love that we're doing it right after watching his most recent movie because this True Romance movie was his first screenplay. The first script that he ever wrote was True Romance, of course, combined with Natural Born Killers, which was one long 500-page manuscript, you know, story that he wrote. And I think it's exciting to be able to talk about his most recent film and then his very first script that he ever wrote. Although he didn't direct True Romance, uh, Tony Scott, of course, the late, great Tony Scott directed True Romance, which is interesting. We'll get into that later, but how that brings a different light on a Quentin Tarantino story that is so true to Quentin Tarantino in so many ways. And it is. It is quintessentially a Tarantino movie. It is probably of all the screenplays that he had written that he didn't direct. This one feels the most Tarantino, hands down. Would yeah. you agree? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So there's, of course, I think that Tony Scott did a great job. But there's, of course, some things I think about what if Quentin Tarantino did direct this film? So it's natural that if we're exploring the idea of, of looking at every Tarantino film, we've done Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and you're absolutely right. If we're going to do this, and, and who knows, we may we might do this. Obviously, 
and you pointed out, True Romance is the starting point. It's the first script that he wrote. There's a lot to unpack when we're talking about this movie, but I just, there, there's a couple things. And before we get into the actual movie itself, I, I just want to say to listeners, if, if you haven't seen this movie, you know, we're not going to give a spoiler warning. We're going to be talking about this movie through and throughout. And so I would just urge you that if you don't want to know anything about the movie, don't listen right now. Hit pause, seek out the movie. It's amazing. If you haven't seen this movie, you got to see this movie. This is the movie that I've been telling people for years that you have to see this movie. It is one of the greatest movies ever made. Absolutely. And I believe, didn't you tell me that uh, that Empire listed it as like the 83rd greatest film of all time? Yes. And I think that that is a little low on the list, frankly, but yes. <laughs> Before we get into the movie, there's a couple things that I thought was really fascinating. And I remember when this movie came out. It came out, it was released September 10th, 1993. I was 15 years old. By that point, I was aware of Quentin Tarantino, but I honestly didn't make the Tarantino connection. I mean, there was no marketing. You go back and watch the trailer for this film. There's no mention of Quentin Tarantino in this film. I mean, he had just done Reservoir Dogs, which was a surprise indie hit. And he, he was quickly coming on the map, but the marketing for this film had nothing to do with Quentin Tarantino. So I remember seeing the trailer, but it wasn't something that I was like running out to go see. And I wasn't alone. What I thought was really, really interesting and like this is a very beloved film. It was made on a $12.5 million budget and it didn't even make its budget back at the box office. Like That's you- so hard to believe with that all-star lineup, that cast that they had. It's hard to believe. But I guess a lot of those people were still new and up and coming. Brad Pitt, for instance, uh, you know, I mean, granted, his role was small in the film, but that's a name that you know for sure yeah, it- nowadays. But he had just done Thelma and Louise, I believe. And was working on, I don't know, a, a River Runs Through It, maybe, or Legends of the Fall, one of those two. I think they came out about the same time. But so he was not a well-known actor quite yet. And, you know, of course, there's James Gandolfini. I mean, he was, he a, was complete this was, unknown. Oh, complete unknown. Yeah, this was his first on-screen, I believe, major movie, or definitely his first major movie role, I believe. Yeah. And, you know, I think he just so happened upon that by accident, too. And one thing I was thinking about, because I was really pondering, the stars of the movie are Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. Now, Patricia Arquette, by that point, I knew her, of course, from Elm Street 3. She played Kristen in Elm Street 3. Uh, that was out in 87. So that was six years prior to this. She hadn't really done anything big up until that point. So she's not a what I would quote call a a bankable star at that point. And Christian Slater, this was an interesting casting choice because Slater by that point, what what was he famous for? Well, I mean, he did Heathers, which I absolutely love. And he even- Pump up the volume. Pump up the volume, true, yes. uh, Gleaming the cube, cuffs- yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And, you know, a, a small part in uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which came out in 91. Oh, gosh, I think. that was a great one. <laughs> oh, we'll have to have a conversation about that film some other time. Yes, we will. Because I, I tend to lean to the side that it's not the greatest film. Oh, well, it's not the greatest Robin Hood, but it's definitely a great movie for guilty pleasures, perhaps. So, <laughs> but when you watch the marketing for True Romance, it's... It's not like, hey, these are the biggest movie stars in the world, you know, like it Christopher was Christopher Walken, I mean, Vin- Dennis Hopper. Yeah, and they put and, and they the, the way they market the trailer, you think these guys are going to be in it throughout the entire film. Oh, and they're totally not. Everybody has almost it's like a cameo of all these amazing stars. Well, Val Kilmer is you don't even see his face. No. And what a cameo. So I was way too young to ever have seen the trailer, just so you know. I was I mean, I was young. I was in what year did this come out again? Ninety three. Okay, ninety three I was in grade school. Okay. 
So to me, this is a movie that I think, you know, unfortunately, the word of mouth about this film really didn't hit until it got to the home video market. And I rented this movie on a whim. It was like a year later. So I was 16, had a driver's license, could go rent movies. And I, I rented this movie sort of just on a whim and watched it. And, you know, and we're going to get into the entire sort of plot of the film. But, you know, the first 15 minutes of this movie, especially if you haven't seen the trailer, are a little deceiving. This looks like just a kind of a, I don't want to use the term awkward, but a, an interesting love story about a, you know, a pop culture geek and a call girl who fall in love. And then the film quickly goes off the rails. And I say that in a very positive way. When was the first time you saw this? So I, I remember the first time I saw this movie. And oh, so when I was in sixth grade, I remember going to this sleepover with a bunch of friends and we watched um, a couple Christian Slater movies. So I had a Christian Slater thing from a very early age. I've always found him to be extremely sultry and sexy. And I watched at that, at that sleepover, we watched Heathers and we watched Untamed Heart. And it was a few years later. I was in high school and I was at the Blockbuster Video down the street from my house. I used to be able to walk there or ride my bike or whatever. And um, I was probably, I want to say, I might have been a freshman in high school and rented this movie because, of course, I see Christian Slater on the cover, True Romance, Patricia Arquette. It looked like a badass movie with the romantic side of it. And I've always been into, I mean, I really like cheesy horror films, but I've always been into some action movies. And of course, romance movies are fun. So I rented that movie and not really fully knowing what to expect because I had never, I had never seen the trailer. Yeah, I don't, I didn't know much about it prior to renting it for the first time. And I remember renting it from Blockbuster, going home, watching it and watching it again and again. And I'm sure there was a late fee because I probably watched that movie five or six times in that weekend that I rented that movie. And I absolutely loved every part about it because it was so unique from any movie I had ever seen before. And you talk about, we like to sometimes talk about movies that are watchable. Talk about a movie that is rewatchable. Oh, yeah. And, and every time you watch it, it's like there's something else that you maybe would have missed. Or so, And we, we watched it today. That's you know, We did. We're, we're just a, a few minutes off from watching it. And we decided to just jump right in and start recording. So let's talk a little bit about the movie. Let's talk about the movie opens up and it's very kind of this, this kind of crazy dichotomy going on with the opening of the film. And well, actually, before that, let me back up. So the movie just literally opens up with Christian Slater's character, Clarence Worley, sitting at a bar having some drinks. It's his birthday. And he's talking to this lady next to him. And he's on the subject of Elvis Presley. She looks like a strung out Marilyn Monroe. She's got the hair. She's got the lips and the eyes and even the face. But man, she looks a little rough and clearly a barfly. That's what I was going to say. She she clearly, you know, is someone who this is her life. Yeah. She literally sits at the bar and she just has drinks and she strikes up conversation. And Clarence is talking to her about Elvis Presley. Like it is established right off the bat that he is obsessed with Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. So much so that he goes into a uh, a bit of a diatribe about, you know, if he was forced to do something, he would do it with Elvis Presley. He's just completely obsessed with Elvis Presley. And that's going to play a pivotal role throughout the entire movie. So oh, yeah. He always wears the Elvis Presley glasses. He's got the hair that's dark. And I mean, he's got that Elvis Presley cool and calm and collected. And I'm really trying to analyze his character from the beginning. Now, he, Clarence is a really smart guy. He He's a really street smart guy and he lives in a really kind of, it's, let's be honest, it's a very poor part of Detroit. We learn that he's just working at a comic book store, basically making minimum wage. Well, he lives above the comic book store. Exactly. And it's his birthday and he just wants to, he just wants to, he goes to the movie every year, every year on his birthday and he's lonely. 
Like it's clearly established that he's he's he really doesn't have anybody in his life, and he has to the point that he's going to ask this barfly if she wants to go see three kung fu movies in a row. You know that's a commitment for anybody, so I'm not surprised that she said no. The whole point of this scene is just to establish that his his obsession with Elvis Presley. So I'm just going to ask you right off the bat, you know, what are your thoughts on Elvis Presley? Because Elvis died in '76 or '77. Yeah. I mean. I think we're the last generation to still kind of remember, you know, his popularity. So he, I think he's still such a pop culture icon. And I think that, you know, you can definitely see that passion for Elvis. And I think it has a lot to do with how, what does he even say? Live fast, die young and leave a good looking corpse. I mean, yeah. that's Elvis Presley, you know, he was the man and he emulates him. But I don't know with Clarence's character and if you want to analyze his character and who he is, Elvis lacked a lot of confidence as well. And you can tell that Clarence is lacking some confidence and he is insecure about maybe his the fact that he is by himself. He doesn't have a girl, but you don't really get that. I mean, he wants to go see these three kung fu movies, regardless if this chick's going to come with him or not. This right. is his thing. And if someone wants to come into his world, he'll welcome that or he'll ask it. You, I don't know. I would say that he's not really out there trying to meet somebody because if he was, he wouldn't be sitting at that particular bar, for one, and going to three kung fu movies by himself on his birthday. I think that he is probably more okay being alone and used to being alone. And that's something that still makes an interesting character. It doesn't seem like he's out there seeking for something else. And, you know, with Elvis as his role model, Elvis was the king of rock and roll. And Elvis is a badass, you know? He lived a very rough, hard life, short. I mean, he partied hard. He, you know, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. I mean, that was an Elvis thing for sure. And uh, Clarence's character and the connection with Elvis, I think, has to do with being cool. And that's a theme throughout the whole movie. I mean, the way it opens up with the song. And the song is called You're So Cool. And I want to talk about that for a second because this is sort of the dichotomy of this opening scene because you have this beautiful song, which is everybody, it's very iconic by this point, with these establishing shots of just the worst parts of Detroit. And it's this, the song almost has sort of a tropical feel, like a really warm feeling about it. A warm feeling, It yes. has a really warm feeling and it's the dead of winter. Her. It's even upbeat. You it's know? even yeah, and it, it's so it so goes against the grain of the images you're seeing on the TV. And to me, that puts you in in a kind of I don't want to say an uncomfortable state, but a very sort of it sets the tone for the movie though, because you do have all these these negative things in a world happening around in this movie where there is still this positive vibe of this true romance, this true love or lust. I think I would go with more lust, but but. Yes and no with the lust because they really do have a connection that is just so pure and true and childlike almost, which there's plenty of parts in that movie that play a tribute to their childlike behavior and mindset. And of course, a love like that to meet someone and immediately get married is probably not a common thing that happens in this world. Not that it doesn't happen, but it's probably not the norm. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I would say, I don't know anybody that's done it, but that doesn't mean they're not out there. No. And, 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 and listeners, you know, we're not going to gloss over Really not going to try to gloss over too much of the scenes, but essentially everybody listening has seen this. Like, so what happens? Like, he goes to the movies. We're introduced to Alabama. She does a bit of a voiceover where she talks about she had to move all the way from the byways and highways of Tallahassee, Florida to Motor City, Detroit to find true romance. To find her one true love. To find her one true love. And if you would have asked her. Exactly. And so she gets to the movie theater. She's, she's a call girl. She's been paid to be there. You know, Clarence's boss has set this up and she is really in the beginning when they're, when they're at the movie, she's just playing the role. 
role. She's a character. She's the call girl. Yeah. Yes. And and afterwards, she invites him to go get pie. They sit at the restaurant, and it's. I'm watching this, and I'm looking for the breakthrough. Where's the moment? Where's the turn? Where does he stop becoming a client? And where does she start to really start to feel? I think it starts with him asking her the questions about herself and that she's actually answering them genuinely. And she doesn't in the beginning. The first couple questions is, what do you do? I don't know. I don't know. Where are you from? I don't don't remember. remember. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, but she. A man who can appreciate the finer things in life like sugar. I love that. He's starting to break down this because he doesn't know she's a call girl. And she's starting to break down this barrier that she's got put up, which I imagine she has to because of the, the line of work that she's in. And. After they have pie, and you know, she says, "Where to next?" And he takes her to the comic book store where he works at, and she's really kind of enthralled by. And like, he shows her Spider-Man One. Absolutely, and you were telling me how much is that thing? I worth? don't know, like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, probably. Listeners will correct <laughs> us if we're wrong, but it's worth a lot, especially a lot. now. By the way, by the way, this is ninety-three. All right, with the way Marvel is now, that Spider-Man Number One is probably worth at least a million dollars. Maybe if, if you know, I don't more, know, if not more. But she was genuinely interested. And you can see the look on her face when he's describing that comic book to her and how cool it is and how much he likes it. And the way that she's looking up at him with those big doe eyes that she has, you can see her falling in love with this person and the way that he is passionate about something that she might not be passionate about, but to see that passion in someone else's eyes and to hear him talk about it. And she, that's the moment where you can see her truly falling for him. They end up spending Oh, and then there's that song, Two Wounded Birds, which is like the sexiest song ever. Of course. And so they spend the night together. And they have a very passionate night together that is- that is very much the part of the reason a deserted island, you're going to want that scene in a movie too, because it's got a little bit of, you see Christian Slater's butt. Is there any more you need? So, and I was just pointing out, like, they're passionately kissing in this scene, which is, I'm sure, not in the wheelhouse for a typical call girl. Like, you realize that, like, Probably she, costs extra. <laughs> yeah, she's, she is really, she's really into him. And, you know, he wakes up, she's sitting outside, she's crying, and they have this whole scene where, you know, it, it all happens so quickly, and she, she's She comes clean them. about everything, like, I'm a, look, I'm a call girl, I've been a call girl for exactly four days, and you're my third customer, it's, you know? Exactly. And, she's yeah. not Florida white trash. Like, And what's really interesting about that is- before she even tells him that, like, I'm in love with you and I'm, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to be monogamous, she asks him, you know, you're not mad that I'm a call girl? And he's like, no, no, this was like the greatest night of my life. It's- he's just glad when he took her dress off, she didn't have a dick. Exactly. That was, I'm sorry, that was a part I still chuckle out loud. I've seen the movie a hundred times and I still chuckle out loud. And they- So, you know what I really love about that part, Dana, is when he is saying, uh, you know, that whole speech about like, gosh, I was just so glad that you weren't, you know, a dude or whatever. And he's saying, you, you like all the things I like. This was the greatest night of my life. And she says, you know, do you mean physically? And he goes, well, yeah, but if you like Kung Fu movies, you like, I mean, all this, he lists all these things that he likes. And of course, the Kung Fu movies. And then he says, you like the Partridge family. And she starts chuckling for a minute. And she goes, no, that was a lie. That was, that was part of the act. I don't really like the Partridge family. And in that moment, I you realize that the Partridge family might just be a bonus, but you know clearly that Kung Fu movies are important to this guy. And she obviously loves that. And for him to have met a girl that has that passion with him and shares that, well, that by itself has got to be difficult to find. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't doubt that for a moment. So what happens? They get married the next day. And I even asked you a question because I wasn't even paying attention to the timeline, the how many times I've seen it. They get married the next day. They're in a tattoo parlor. They're getting matching tattoos. Matching tattoos. Matching tattoos. And she starts to tell him about- Her pimp. Her pimp, Drexel. 
Call girls have pimps. Call girls have pimps. They I have, guess. Yeah. And, and he, let me tell you right now, he may be cool with the fact that she was a call girl. He may be cool with the fact that she's come clean. They've gotten married. He is not cool with the oh, fact. Oh, no. You can see his face turn red. Christian Slater did a great job. And in that moment, you re- you really realize what a hothead that person is. That yeah. The depth of that character starts to get a little deeper there because you really see that he's got some sort of a... He's crazy. He's got a crazy... I mean, they're both probably a little crazy, let's be honest. To yeah. do that, you got to be a little crazy. But he's got a crazy side to him. And you can really kind of start to see that forming right there. And it's bothering him. It's bothering him immensely because... He doesn't let it go. She... she she left Drexel. Like, she never went back to Drexel's place. Oh, yeah. And she doesn't have any clothes. She doesn't have anything. He literally goes into the bathroom. And this is when we get... You You, you realize this is not the first time that he's talked to Elvis. Because right. Because he's not like, what the fuck's going on? Where did you come from? Like, this is a regular thing. Like, this is borders his, on um, paranoid schizophrenia. Almost. Oh, yeah. Like, he's like Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. Like, he's... He's got something going on for you to be able to sit there and help have Elvis talk to you. And, El- and, and it's, it's like his imaginary friend type. But it's... I mean, it's somebody there giving him advice. It's like his mentor hanging out right in the background and he sees him. The only time you ever see that happen is when Clarence is alone. Exactly. So you know that this isn't another character in this film. This is his mind. Yeah. And this is his mind justifying the fact that, look, it's not enough that Alabama's not there anymore. It's not enough that they've gotten married and they're clearly in love and they're going to stay together. He is convinced by... Let's be honest. He's convinced by himself, but it's it, through the delusion of Elvis Presley. Oh, yeah. That the only way that Clarence is actually going to be satisfied is he has to kill Drexel. Well, Elvis, I mean, Elvis even says, do you, how do you feel walking around knowing that guy's breathing the same air as you? Absolutely. And it, and it's a really interesting thing to because Slater, is, he's sort of reasoning with himself. I, I, I keep saying himself. He's, he's talking to Elvis, but it's himself he's talking to. And he's like, if I knew I could get away with it, I would do it. I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail. And Elvis right. Is no, like, he's reasoning. He's talking out loud to his imaginary friend can you imagine being stuck in a stall in that bathroom <laughs> Tell me, and, the, and the thing is that you know elvis is telling him you think the cop's gonna give a fuck about a pimp you know the, every pimp gets killed two in the back of the head no big deal cops yeah. throw a party who gives a shit yeah. he said killing's the hard part getting away is the easy part and there's an interesting line where he says as long as you're not there smoking gun in your hand you're gonna get away with it well that's not exactly how it turns out. So Clarence goes to Alabama and he is just like, give me the address. They're sitting on the couch watching a Kung Fu movie, enjoying marital bliss, I would imagine. Yeah, they're drinking champagne. They just got married. Just got married, drinking the champagne. And she comes forth and tells him, you know, he asks her, where is this guy? I want to get your things. Yeah. She he doesn't, doesn't say he's going to kill. He doesn't no, say no. I'm going to go. He goes, I'm just going to go get your things. And she's telling him, no, you have no idea. You have no idea what you're going through. You don't know. And he just says, no, you don't know me. You don't yeah. know what I'm capable of. Not and, like that. And yeah. then we get the scene. Now, the scene where we get a quick introduction of Drexel, played by the ever so amazing Gary Oldman. How is he not in every single movie? He is the most versatile actor, I think, on the planet. This is a man that in his home country of England does like Shakespeare plays, like the Playhouse at Shakespeare. Like what he is so talented. With the exception of the Dark Knight trilogy, he never looks the same in any movie he is in. He is he more so than, and, and listeners can get upset if I say this, more so than Daniel Day-Lewis, 
I think Gary Oldman transforms into the characters to the point where you never see Gary Oldman. Putting no. the Dark Knight, putting the Dark Knight Rises aside. Think so, about the Fifth Element. I mean, uh, Gary Oldman in the Fifth Element. Yeah. Gary Oldman in True Romance. In the, that's the same guy, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. That is the that's same. That's the same guy. And, and so we get the brief introduction where Drexel's ha- he's having a drug deal. Samuel L. Jackson. Hi, Samuel L. Jackson. Welcome to the movie for thirty-five seconds. Well, he has to be in everything. He you literally, know? yeah. This, this, I mean, literally, he has to be. In, and they're just having a little. Uh, I like to say a little locker room talk, a little banter back and forth with each other. And uh, <laughs> you know, Drexel basically just kills kills two people. It was a drug deal gone bad. And that's kind of our introduction to Drexel. But fuck, like Gary Oldman's got the dreadlocks. You had mentioned that, you know, he had just the year before he had been in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And he actually kept one of the, the contacts. And that was one of the eyes that he wore. Yes, in True yes, Romance. it was. And uh, I, listen, long-time listeners will remember that my friend Phil Juano, who directed Gary Oldman in State of Grace, uh, they they remained very good friends. Phil was actually on set with Gary when he was filming his Drexel scenes. Okay, so I heard that so was Gary Oldman's mother. Oh, well, that's which I think is really neat because she must have been the most amazing woman. From the way I remember Phil explaining to me, like he didn't break character, like even when it was cut, like he just was this larger than life pimp who was it was pretty extraordinary. So I thought it was interesting the way that he accepted the role in the first place. Go on. Tell so, me. So, I mean, he doesn't read a script. He gets offered this role and he goes, well, well, I haven't read anything about it. Just tell what is the, who is it? What is, who am I going to be playing? And he goes, well, basically you are a, a white guy that's a drug dealer pimp who is, he thinks that he's black. And, and Gary Oldman immediately says, all right, and, challenge accepted, so, I would imagine. And because knocked. this man is from England. Yes, yes. And currently, well, not currently, but at that time, probably had just very recently done Hamlet, (laughs) you know? Exactly. Okay, so State of Grace was sort of his first American film. And it didn't do the numbers that they had hoped, but for those who saw it, and it's it has a huge cult following, he's really good in it. He plays Jackie Flannery, uh, the crazy part of the, uh, the Irish mafia in New York. He does Bram Stoker's Dracula, which... Again, was a popular movie, but I don't think he was still, he wasn't the Gary Oldman that we know today. So it wasn't like, oh, Gary Oldman's in this movie. We have to go see it. Nowadays, Gary Oldman's in a movie like, oh, we got to go see this. So, so Clarence gets the address and this is the point where the movie takes a turn. Like, oh, yeah. Up the in, violence begins. Yeah. Literally up. And I, I checked it was like 23 minutes into the film. And if you've been watching the movie up until this point, it's a love story. It's a, it's an interesting love story. It's kind of a fucked up love unconventional, story. Unconventional. To say, say the that. least. It's an unconventional love story. And this entire scene, and there are many scenes in this film, but this entire scene where, you know, Clarence just walks up to, it looks like a hotel, like a motel. I mean, I, it just, there's, there's, there's hookers dancing outside. There's even red lights on outside. I mean, there's, it's literally the red light district. <laughs> and there's that pulsating dance music playing. And I have to tell you something. This is 93. So 93, probably saw it in 94. You know, I'm 16 years old. That music spoke to me. And I, I, I have to say that True Romance may have laid the initial foundation for me want, wanting to explore that music a little bit more. And one of the reasons why I got into DJing, because well, I- Well, the music starts out, that's such a great beat. And the way that it starts out, it's slow. And then you can feel the intensity yeah. growing in the music, just like you can feel the intensity growing in the room when they're all sitting there. And that whole conversation, the way that that was filmed, it was- so intense. And the tension that was built between Gary Oldman and Christian Slater and Christian Slater's character is there for a fucking reason. There's a purpose. 
I and love, Gary Oldman doesn't know what that is. He doesn't. But I, and the thing is, what's really interesting is how Gary Oldman is sort of probing Clarence a little bit. He's trying to, he's trying to figure out, he's like, he's like, he, you know, he, he, Marty, his Gary Oldman's, uh, Drexel, Drexel. Drexel's henchman, Marty. He just what whispers in the air. He was asking about Alabama and Gary Oldman's like, where the fuck is that bitch? Oh yeah. And in, in, Christian Slater is like he. She's with me. Well, who the fuck are you? I'm her husband, and I love the line where. And remember, Alabama says that they've only. She's only worked for him for four days, and he still has the gall to look at Clarence and goes, "Well, that makes us practically related." Oh yeah. Well, so, it had to have been a long four days by the by judging the looks of that place. Yes, absolutely. And this is a really interesting thing because we, again, we talk. You mentioned that you know Clarence is probably a little bit crazy, and you'd have to be a little bit crazy to do any of the things that he's done. And he walks in there and. Drexel's like, you want a stout, man? You want you want an egg roll? I got a little, anything you want. You want it from Fu Manchu to who do whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we get everything from a whatever to a damn if I know. I don't yep, even there remember it the is. line. And it's so tense, and the music is just pulsating, and you can just hear it just booming. And the whole time, Clarence never takes his eyes off Drexel. Drexel's just eating. He's got the chopsticks. They're starting to get a little bit back and forth, and Drexel starts to call him out. And start to say, man, you know what? Oh gosh! The, and when he flings that light back yeah, and forth, he just keeps the, putting the light the, back and forth. That's intense. And he the goes, tension. He like because he tells him to sit down, and then Clarence has this great line where, and he even says, he says, look, you you won't even look at the TV. You've just been clocking me, you know. Oh, yeah. he, and he just and Clarence just says, I'm not, I'm not sitting because I'm not staying, or I'm not, I'm not eating because I'm not hungry. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not watching the TV because I've seen the movie seven years ago. It's the Mac with Richard Pryor. Yeah. And Max Dooley and Carol Speed or Richard Pryor. And he goes, and I'm not, and I'm not scared of you. I just don't like you. And he just, it's so dynamic. And Drexel still, cause Drexel says to him, man, if you would have sat down and just started grabbing some food, I would have been like this, you know, this motherfucker's carrying on like he doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. Maybe, who knows? Maybe he doesn't. And, and then he hands him the envelope. Oh, it was, let me tell you something. I've seen this movie so many times, but I can still remember the first time I saw that film. And when he hands him the envelope, immediately I'm thinking, how much money is in there? Okay, so this is what he's doing. He's going to buy... My peace of mind is worth this and not a penny more. You think he's going to just... It's an offer. Here, Alabama's with me. I, and and he fucking opens the envelope and it's empty. And that was just so... The tension fun. right there, you could... I mean, in that moment while watching the movie, you know that this isn't going to end well. Because just a few minutes prior, we saw him execute a bunch of people in a drug deal gone yeah. bad. So now we're thinking, well, Clarence has got to survive, but how is this going to go, man? And and Drexel, who's been cool the whole time, he literally says, you know, none of this is necessary. I don't have any hold over Alabama. I'm just trying to help, you know, help the girl out. And he flings his tray at him and mm-hmm. then all hell breaks loose. And they're- What and- a scene too. I mean, it was building up and you felt that tension explode right there. And when I- he flips the table over and they- and Go they're fighting, it. and they're just oh, yeah. throwing each other across the room, and the, and the fit into the fish tanks, and they all break. And I mean, it was intense. And Marty, Marty's got a got a hold of him from the back, and Drexel's just pounding on him. He's like, "You see what happens when you fuck with me, yeah, oh, yeah. boy?" And it it's got just, crazy. And what's what I remember? What was really, what was really like the moment where I, I, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to the first time I've seen this. Like, I'm, I want to talk about my reactions the first time I saw that. And Clarence is on the ground, and Drexel takes his wallet out. He has his license. He knows exactly where he lives. And you're just like, fuck, this is all over for him. You don't even see a way out. You forget that when he was leaving his house, there's a scene of him putting a, a revolver in his sock. Yeah. And you know, uh, look, he does it. 
Drexel gets distracted for a second. He ends up shooting in the worst possible the, place. Oh, and, and then the that is just so graphic. But you know, there's the Quentin Tarantino coming out. Yeah. There's the violence and the graphic, and but it is on point. Because you've just gone from such a love and romance to this, and it's like, what the heck is going to happen next? When we were watching it today, there was the the scene where you know he, he shoots Drexel in the crotch, and Drexel's got blood in his eyes, and he's he's you know he's shaking his hands, and Clarence you know tells him to open his eyes, and he says, "You think this is funny?" And he shoots him like and like five times. That's when that, you really see the crazy. That's exactly the point I was trying to make. Yeah. Yes, like he doesn't just shoot him once. Like, okay, this is done. He's just like, "Fuck you!" and shoots oh, him. Oh gosh, shoots him. it was. And, and there's this rage that's come out, you know, cause this guy, he loves his wife so much. And, and he just, in his mind, he's thinking about all these things that Drexel's probably hasn't, maybe hasn't done, but would have done to her. And he just lets it all out. But what a crazy thing because he doesn't even know his wife. So that's the, that's the real level of crazy coming out that yeah. really, like, I think it's, it's really great, but that's an intense depth. That's an in-depth character right there. And then he he tells one of the girls, he points the gunner, get a bag, put Alabama's things in it. You want to yeah. get shot. you know. And then he says, there's a great line where he's like, he says, I just did you the biggest fucking favor of your life. Yeah. Now get a bag and put Alabama's things in. Now, to go back, we have to go back briefly just for a moment because that scene where we do see, like you said, we see Drexel execute a couple people. It was a drug deal go bad and there's this big suitcase full of cocaine and that's ultimately what the girl gives Clarence. So Clarence brings it back to the house. And this is another interesting scene because he comes back. He's got blood all over him. Oh, this is one of my favorite scenes. He's Dana. got he's got a burger and he's like, he's yep. like this is the best fucking burger. I don't remember. I he's hungry. He he's, says, I fucking killed him. I killed him. And, and she, Alabama starts crying and she's all upset and he starts yelling at her. Which bothered me. Well, it's it, scary. But then you see her just go, oh, that's the and, you know, she's trying to get it out and she's upset and he's getting angry and it gets intense for a second. And then she goes, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever done. That's the sweetest thing anybody's ever And like. Wow, they have definitely started off with a fucked up relationship and taken it just even further. And just when you think it can't get more crazy than marrying a call girl you met on the you met on the first night, now he just murdered somebody who happened to be your pimp, and you love him even more, and you see that come across where it's almost a Bonnie and Clyde moment. The, and this was also the part where when we were watching the movie, you know, she goes, "Oh, I've got you know, I've got fresh clothes, I've got clothes." And I remember I actually hit pause and I looked at you and I said, "This has all been like in the span of like twenty four hours. Like the night before, he's at the movies, he meets her, they get married in the morning. By that night, he he's is, killing her pimp. He, he's literally killing her pimp." So. By the way, first time watching this, mind is blown by this point. My mind is blown and I, my mind gets blown even more when she opens up the suitcase to reveal multiple kilos of cocaine. And that was like. They kept saying 250000 or $200,000. They, they were it a half a million dollars worth of cocaine okay. that what? he was offering for two hundred. It was definitely a giant suitcase. So either way, yeah, not clean clothes to say the very least. No, definitely not clean clothes. And that, I, I remember, that was the point in the movie when she opens up the suitcase when I was like, holy shit, I have no idea where this movie's going, but I am on board and I can't wait to see how this ends. What a ride it is. What too. a ride it is. So what happens next? So Clarence has got to figure out a couple things. One, he's just killed, he's just killed a couple people. Yeah. So he's going to go visit his dad, played the, by the amazing, late, great Dennis Hopper. Yes. And, and his, what a small but dominating role he plays. Yeah. Dennis Hopper can easily have filled a room. And his character and the way 
the calmness comes across with him. And you really, in a very short period of time in this movie, feel a little connection to Dennis Hopper. And of course, there's that scene that is... Well, when we're, yeah, we'll definitely, we're going to get to that. So, but we just, we don't want to, I, I want to second what you said about this is one of the best Dennis Hopper performances I've ever seen. And he's only in the movie for 15 minutes, if that. He's so good. And and when Clarence shows up at, you know, Dennis Hopper, he's a, he's a security guard. He's getting off the night shift. He gets home. He's got a little trailer by the by the river. You know, you can see the skyline of Detroit in the background. And Clarence shows up and, you know, Dennis Hopper's like, well, I haven't seen you in three years. You just show up and now you're married. But there's a reason why Christian Slater stopped by there because his dad was used to be a cop and he needs to know whether or not the cops are on to him. He wants to feel safe moving forward with him and his wife and and what they're planning on doing. If he knows that he's his biggest concern is being held accountable for these murders, you know? Right. So he's not even thinking forward to the drug part. That never even occurs to these people, which I found to be a little surprising at the time. Even the first time I saw it, maybe not. But if as you watch it again and again, you know, you have a giant suitcase of of cocaine, it definitely belongs to someone's going to be missing it. Yeah, that that's not chalk that up to the cost of doing business. Somebody's going to find that. I mean, watching that movie, how is that not even I mean, that's still not a concern. It never does become a concern, which is kind of surprising. But it's interesting because so his dad says, you know, there's this great scene between the two of them where his dad's like, why should I help you? And Clarence basically says, you know what? I was the only one that stuck by you when you were at your lowest and I never asked you for anything and I need you to help me. And I'm a pretty resourceful guy. I wouldn't be here if I didn't need the help. Exactly. And so Dennis Hopper makes the calls and needs to call, tells him that, hey, look. This Drexel guy, he was hooked up with a guy named Blue Lou Boyle. They they were drug dealer. They did drug deals together, and basically the cops are just going to assume pin it that, on him. Yeah, he had he had a, he had a run in with Blue Lou, and you believe, oh yeah, you as the audience believe that okay, holy shit, he's free and in the clear. So they have a great emotional moment. You know, he gives him an address. He said, "We're going. To, we're going to Los Angeles. We're going to my friend Dick Ritchie's house." And this is he where he finds I'll be. out that Alabama does in fact taste like a peach. Absolutely, and. So all is well. So we believe. We believe all is well. And you there's know. a part at that trailer that I just have to say, I their childlike love and their child. So these are people that are clearly going through some pretty violent things, and they still manage to have Patricia Arquette. You know, Alabama's doing cartwheels yeah. in right in front of the trailer, and I I think that that really pays tribute to the fact that these this couple is still very childlike at heart, yeah. and that child innocence. You really get to see it there for one of the last times in the movie. And they're young. Like, make a mistake about, like, their characters, I have to believe, are in their early 20s. Like, that's, I think, how they're being presented. So, they're young and probably a little naive. Obviously, Clarence says goodbye. There's a great scene where we're introduced to the character of Dick Ritchie, who plays by by Michael Rappaport. You know, he's auditioning for the new TJ Hooker. And that scene is absolutely hilarious. He's so pumped up and excited sitting there waiting to audition in this dingy little dark. That (laughs) casting director could not give a fuck. Oh, no. She was not. She didn't. Dick Ritchie, all right, come on. Here's the scene. And he's doing his scene. He's like, where'd he come from? You just hear her going, I don't know. He just came out of nowhere. Shoot him. Shoot Shoot him. And, and, and she's like, okay, that's great. You're a really great actor. So we get that, we get that brief scene just to introduc- introduce him. He's got such an upbeat attitude about it. He really does. Michael Rappaport played such a great, uh, just 
the whole movie, he he always has a smile on his face. He does. He's a super optimistic guy. So Clarence leaves and we get this great scene where he calls Dick. Dick's, Dick Ritchie is sitting, calls Michael Rackaport. He's sitting on the toilet. It's hilarious. And they're just, Clarence is saying, Oh, and fine. there you get the hello, baby. Absolutely. <laughs> and they're, you know, so basically Clarence is just telling him, Hey, we're on our way. Read the letter I sent you. We got something planned. And I love the part when Alabama gets on the phone and she's the one that calls him, you know, Clarence. Says, call, you know, call him, let him know we're coming. And she's on the phone and she says, well, um, if you're Clarence's best friend, I guess that makes you my best friend too. Mm-hmm. I think that was cute. And so after they hang up, they have just an incredible, there's that, by the way, an incredible moment. Oh, in the phone booth. Okay. So that is definitely one of the most passionate love scenes, I think, in the movie. And it's so natural and it feels so spontaneous. And that's very, it's a very sexy part for sure. If you're watching this for the very first time, like you're thinking, all right, all is well. Clarence and Alabama are on their way to Los Angeles. Love is in the air. Cop is, cops are not looking for him. Why are we coming back to Dennis Hopper? Why Why all of a sudden is, is the film going back to Dennis Hopper coming home, walks into his trailer, and this is where you realize, yep, like you just said, Kristen, somebody's looking for this cocaine. And the reason why they're at Dennis Hopper's place is because when Drexel pulled out the driver's license during that scene- Clarence never picked it back up. Clarence never picked it back up. And the cops probably didn't find it because the gangsters were probably there before the cops showed up. Long before, probably. And this is where we get one of the most iconic scenes in the entire movie. This is where you get the two two titans, Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper. Christopher Walken, you know, introduces himself as the Antichrist. I'm the Antichrist. I mean, you've got me in a vendetta kind of mood. I'm, I'm counsel for Blue Lou Boyle. And what I thought was really fascinating about this scene is Dennis Hopper is smart enough to know he's dead. Like they're these guys, they're he's not getting out of this situation. He is not going to get out of the situation, and they are going to make this situation incredibly uncomfortable for him. They're going to torture him, and it's a question of how long can he hold out for because he's not going to give up his son. No, he'll, he'll die before he gives up his son. What I also found really fascinating, Kristen, was I don't want to say there was a mutual respect because Dennis Hopper did not like these guys, but the way that Christopher Walken was. He was almost respectful to him. He was almost respectful and, and, you know, would you like a cigarette? Can I get you this? What would you like? Because he knew he was going to kill him. He knew he was going to kill him. And And so did Dennis Hopper. And I think it was a very, that scene was. And Dennis Hopper, you know, at one point, Christopher Walken offers him a Chesterfield, which is a a cigarette. He offers him a cigarette. He says, no, I, no, I don't, no, I don't want a cigarette. I don't want anything from you. And they keep talking and. You know, they're, they're cutting his hands and pouring alcohol on his hands and they're punching him in the face and breaking his nose and they're, 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 they're torturing him for information. And I think there just becomes that turning point for Christopher Walken's character where he realizes that, that this guy is never going to give up the guy. Well, that part when he says, you know, you know, when he punches him and I mean, he goes, see that? That smarts, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's as good as it's going to get. Yeah. What I have to offer you, that's as good as it's going to get. It's hard to watch because, and then, Dennis Hopper says, can I get one of those Chesterfields? Because at that point, he knows. But he doesn't do that until he starts talking about how men and women have a certain tell and that Sicilians are the best liars. Yeah. And that's what really takes us down that very iconic dialogue between Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walker. I mean, and it's really just more of a... um, it's not so much a dialogue as it is. So Dennis Hopper is giving a monologue. He's basically giving a monologue. And I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to, he knows he's going to die. 
And he says, all right, well, if I'm going to die, then I'm going to give you something that you can think about for the rest of your life. I actually think that he knows he's going to die and he knows if he says something like that, that it will happen a whole lot faster than him being tortured to give up information about his son. So Dennis Hopper goes on this speech that is, whew, holy moly. Yeah. I mean, it is like, wow, 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 wow. And you and I were talking. And intense. And at the end. There is no choice but for him to get, like, immediately, the reaction is going to be him getting shot. Yeah. It's not going to be a torturous, because this is something that, in that situation, they could sit there and torture this man for days or weeks until they found out the information that they wanted from him. I think he knew that. This is a police officer. We have to think about how this man has lived a life where he has seen and heard enough things to be smart enough to know. And you and I were talking during the scene. When the scene was over, I looked at you and I said, this movie came out in 1993. You wouldn't be able to get away with that dialogue in 2019. Mm -mm. Because it's a very, let's let's be honest, it's very uncomfortable, the speech that he, the the monologue that he gives, it's incredibly uncomfortable to watch and it's incredibly uncomfortable to listen to. And you're not getting away with that. It sure was powerful. And and then Christopher Walken's character at the end, I haven't killed anybody since 1984. And he blasts him and then spits on him and whew. And then there's clearly... Some of the mob guys that are watching the door and hanging out go, you know, they don't speak English. They don't know what he just said. And one of them even asked in Italian, what, what happened? What's go, you know, what did he do? He goes, you know, he explains it to him and then he's like, oh, well, this guy hasn't killed anybody since 1984. Yeah, but, so I mean, that's saying a lot. But none of the guys in the room were like overreacting like, boss, what did you do? Like, oh, no. Like, no, all right. And Gandolfini's in there. James Gandolfini's yes, he is. He's just in the room. He never really says anything. It was such an intense, I mean, the tension. And that is, I think that that speaks, of course, to the directing of Tony Scott, but that, that scene truly is the writing of Quentin Tarantino. Oh, yeah. And you really can tell, it, like we discussed in the uh, conversation about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the way that Quentin Tarantino is able to build tension out of virtually thin air is, in that scene, more than anything else, completely there. It is two people sitting down talking to each other. It's what they're saying. So yep. it's the script. That's the writing. That's yeah. Quentin Tarantino's writing. Absolutely. That has nothing to do with any any directing or, you know, even who, it doesn't matter who said that. It doesn't have to be Dennis Hopper, but the fact that it was, it was delivered so eloquently and perfectly. Absolutely. I don't think that there is someone else that could have done that kind of job. After Christopher Walken kills Dennis Hopper, he tells the guys, go to Clarence's apartment, turn that place upside down, find out where he's at. And one of the guys just happens to look at the fridge and right there on a magnet stuck to the fridge is the address of Dick Ritchie. And it's Get like, ready to be happy. Yep. And that is basically the first act of the movie. We've established everything. Now we're into the... We're into act two. So basically the second half of the movie opens up with beautiful shot of them just driving into the downtown part of Los Angeles. A great Aerosmith song playing. See the Capitol Records building. Mm-hmm. And they're on their way. It's a great scene where they show up at Dick Ritchie's house. Michael Rappaport's house. Oh, yes. And you've got Floyd, of course. You've got Floyd, played by Brad Pitt. On the Pitt. couch, barely moves, the guy on the couch. I mean, it's played by Brad Pitt. Yes. And he has such a small role in this, but it's so memorable. It's very memorable. And it's it's such a, uh, <laughs> I guess, almost like a cliche to LA and people being stoners and chilling on the couch and just a very laid back feeling. It, I, Floyd strikes me as a guy who's not very ambitious. Not much, probably so, not. So, the, the great scene, the Alabama knocks on the door, Dick opens up the door, and she's like, do you call for a date? 
And he's like, what? And Clarence oh, yeah. jumps in and he's like, I knew it was you. <laughs> you can tell that Ra- Michael Rapport, Christian Slater, their characters, they've been friends for a very long time. So much so that- Childhood he- friends. Childhood friends. He gets Michael Rapaport to come out. He's just in a t-shirt and boxers and they just go right to the safari inn and get the honeymoon suite. And this is, this is really crucial for the movie because the reason why Clarence has contacted Dick is because, you know, Dick's an, an, an actor and he's pretty sure that Dick would know some people that he might be able to sell the cocaine for. And and what is Clarence asking for? He says he's got a half a million dollars worth of cocaine. He's prepared to sell it for $200,000. And he really wants Dick Ritchie to help him, you know, facilitate this deal. Well, and it paints the picture, I think, a little bit of how the, the glor- how glorified Los Angeles must seem to someone from Detroit, too. You know, you've got this guy that is, I mean, let's face it, Dick Ritchie, he might be an actor. But by no means is he a well-to-do actor. I mean, he's living in this little apartment with the guy on the couch. And it's funny because that's Clarence's only connection to a place like that where dreams come true, right? So that kind of paints that picture, I think, uh, in a very subtle way. But it comes across with, obviously, it's a very big plot point because they go to L.A., which is this magical place where the magic happens. And these two, these two young kids from Detroit want to go out there and make a life for themselves and sell these drugs. I mean, obviously sell a bunch of drugs to people that want drugs. And what an interesting start to it that they think that this Dick Ritchie guy who doesn't have a substantial film career is going to be their connection. It's their one connection. To be fair now, Dick does say, hey, look, I do know a guy. Look, I know one guy. His name is Elliot Blitzer. Clarence is like, he is he big time? He's like, no, but he works for somebody big time. He works for this producer named Lee Donowitz. Who- Elliot Blitzer. What? Let's talk about that because that is Belky, man. That is Belky from Perfect Strangers. The Bronson Pinchot is his name. And you know, I'll tell you, I, I was going to tell you, there's a really interesting thing I read about Bronson Pinchot, and I've seen him in interviews do this before. He has never seen himself on screen before. He never watches anything that he's ever been in. Like, that's a thing. I just feel so bad for him right now because True Romance is truly one of the greatest movies ever. And he's never seen himself in it. He doesn't, he doesn't watch himself. One time, this is going back years ago. I remember him being on the Phil Donahue show and he was being interviewed about something and they played a clip and you watch him close his eyes and plug his ears and put his head down because he never watches his performances. He's never seen them before. And that's, I would have, yeah, that's and, and interesting. Can we just say Bronson Pinchot, uh, underrated actor, like he's really good. Like he's really good in this movie. He was fun in Perfect Strangers. He's got that great cameo in Beverly Hills Cop as Surge at their art gallery, but he's really, really good in this movie. And he's sort of this, you know, He's not, filled with anxiety. Yeah, but he's kind of, I, I don't want to use the word like slimy, but he thinks he's more important than he is. Oh, yeah. And they set this meeting at an amusement park and, and, and Elliot is just trying to be this really calm. He's like, he's like, so you got, uh, $500,000 worth of cola that you're unloading for two. And, and Clarence is not biting. He's just like, you want an animal cracker? Like he's, he wants to wait until he gets him on a roller coaster. He wants to wait until he can talk to him where there's no one around. And Clarence basically tells him, this story about he makes up this story about how you know the, this cocaine came from an evidence locker for a police officer saw his opportunity and took it basically clarence is trying to get to lee donowitz through elliot well and elliot is just so not smooth you know no. clearly he's not smooth he has never done anything like this before obviously but he's just not a smooth talking guy and clarence is a smooth talking guy clarence has alvis in his corner and he is so cool they go up on the roller coaster and it's hilarious. Elliot does not do well on the roller coaster. We 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 see him afterwards. He's got 
puked then, all over him. Oh, yeah. and But in real life, I guess that he they really filmed that on a roller coaster. And apparently he is like not, he does not do well on roller coasters. So that was pretty genuine. That may have even been real puke. Who knows? But like, he is definitely been. not. Elliot calls Lee Donowitz. This is where we get the we get the introduction to the big big time movie producer, Lee Donowitz. And I was telling you that this character of uh, Lee Donowitz was, was heavily inspired by real film producer Joel Silver, who was responsible and has been responsible for some pretty damn iconic films. Very like, iconic. Uh, you know, up until that point, we're talking like Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Predator, like big bombastic action films. And from everything I've read about Joel Silver, like he was... This Lee Donowitz, this was his character. He was just so over the top. Lee's driving his Porsche. And it's so funny because it's he's trying to drive, hold the phone, have a cigarette, open a bottle of water. And, you know, he's trying to balance all of this at one time. And, you know, meanwhile, talking to him. And, and, he, and, and he's pissed at Elliot. He's like, I can't believe you're calling me on my car phone. About on my this. personal phone. This is crazy. Why are you calling me on Sunday? You're calling me because of this? You're calling me because on the phone? And Clarence grabs the phone and he just, they start talking in code. He's like, yeah, I want to unload Dr. Chivago. And Lee's like, listen, Clarence, I, I deal with little distributors. They, I deal with, you know, small distributors. They give me their little films and I get in and get out and there's no risk. You know, Dr. Chivago is a big picture. It's a, yeah. He, he said, we want to open Dr. Chivago. We want to get to can, you know, we want to get there. And, you know, he gets Elliot, Lee gets Elliot back on the phone and he goes, all right, you know what? Bring the whole I lot. like Clarence. Let's meet him. Bring the whole gang. Bring yeah. the whole gang. And this is where Elliot, who thinks he's smooth, he says, all right, listen, we're going to meet at this hotel this Wednesday, three o'clock. If he likes you, if he likes you, if he doesn't, he'll say, fuck you. And that's it. And this is where Elliot fucks up. He goes, oh, and by the way, he wants a sample bag. He didn't ask for a sample bag. No. This was Elliot's thinking he's going to be smooth. And this is obviously he's going to come back to bite him in the ass big time. They're excited. Alabama, Clarence, Dick, they're excited. They're, they're, this deal is going to happen. And, you know, they drop Dick Ritchie goes home. Clarence drops Al- Alabama off at the motel. He goes to go get some food. So this is an interesting scene because he drops her of off. Yeah. And you have Alabama in one scenario and Clarence in another. And Clarence is there having, he doesn't know what's going on in the hotel, but he's ordering a burger and he's talking to some guy about a, the cover of Newsweek where that it's Elvis Presley on the cover and he's having a conversation. And, and so it, I like how the shot goes back and forth between what's happening because when Alabama gets back to that hotel room, who's there but James Gandolfini. James Gandolfini. And there, he yeah. is there looking for He's looking for the drugs. That's the mob. Now the mob has found them. They're looking for their stuff. And you as the audience are just like, oh, no. The, like, the tension is there. And, and I want to tell you that for me, this this whole scene with Alabama in the hotel room with James Gandolfini, to me, is still really difficult to watch. Oh, yeah. And we watched the director's cut today. We did. And I was mentioning to you that the director's cut, when they initially submitted this film for its rating... Uh, they had to heavily edit that scene because it is brutal. It is, it's incredibly brutal what happens it's to her. It's very graphic. And, and yeah, the director's cut leaves all that original, all those original scenes in. And 
We're working on the assumption that everybody that's listening right now knows exactly what we're talking about. But even today, even though I've seen the movie multiple, multiple times, I still have a really hard time getting through that. Oh, but, but to be fair, there's also a really interesting scene in that. There's a, there's a sub part of that where Gandolfini's talking about what it's like to kill somebody for the first time. And I thought that was a really fascinating scene where he's like, you know, the first time's always the hardest. I threw up the first time. The second time, it's not so bad. It's diluted. He goes, the third time, it's all the old hand by that point. He's like, now I just do it to watch their expression change. Like, you Ugh, know, this it's so guy, dark. He's such a cold blooded. It's killer. very cold. He has no passion in his life. And then you have the, in that same scene, the exact opposite persona, which is Alabama, of course, who is this innocent, doe-eyed, albeit not that innocent, but she is a very loving and will do anything to protect her husband. And the man that she loves, she loves 100%. And in the beginning of that movie, when she says that she's 100%, she's 100%. Absolutely. And she never, ever gives up anything she won't give up the cocaine she, she won't, won't give up clarence no, she doesn't even say never. who's clarence i don't know who you're talking about she we don't, we don't have the any most, coke the loyalty in that scene that alabama has for clarence mm-hmm. is unmatched of any scene of loyalty that i've in a movie that i can think of she's got that great line she says we don't have any coke but there's a pepsi machine right down the hall oh yeah and and gandolfini's not stupid he and knows she, oh yeah she's got her shades on yeah and is looking all cool and trying to play it cool and oh my my husband will be back any minute he plays football you know, and obviously James Gandolfini knows that it's a lie, but he lets her go on and on. And then he says, let me see those pretty eyes of yours. And as soon as she lifts up those beautiful turquoise glasses, the fear is blatant in her face. It is so powerful. That scene when she, when he takes the glasses off and you just see the fear in her, in her eyes and it's, you just feel for her, but to her credit, like she, she fights to the very, very end to the very last moment and then the i mean she and she kicks eventually beats him you know i mean she she stabs him with the corkscrew oh yeah she hits him with the top of the toilet seat she lights him on fire oh yeah it's intense and she blows him away the shotgun and then beats him to then beats his head in with with the butt of the shotgun like it's so it's very graphic like look this is a very powerful this is a this is a violent movie Make no mistake oh, about yeah. it. This is an incredibly violent movie. Some of the violence is, is stylized. Some of it's very fast edits and fast takes because t- that's what Tony Scott does. You know, he's very, he's got a very quick edit when it comes to violence and very things can be very, you know, I don't want to use the word cool, but really aesthetically like, wow, that's really kind of incredible. This scene is just brutal. Oh gosh, her hair is drenched in blood. Her She's face is blood. swollen up, and then Clarence busts in with his gun, and she is still just beating. She's hysterical. Like he grabs her, she freaks out. She doesn't even realize that that's him. No, like, and he grabs her and yanks her out of there. And it, again, this is the Bonnie and Clyde moment, you know, yeah. that they're having at that. I mean, one of, but that is definitely a Bonnie and Clyde type feel. It's and a very, he, rep, you know. And you realize, like you realize, you know, like they're in a really bad situation. That just got a whole lot worse. It's, gotta, it's they're at, they're at their lowest point at this point. And they go to some abandoned airfield where he is sitting there holding her on the uh, looks like a a rear a back seat of a car that's been pulled out and left for trash. And they're sitting there and he's trying to clean her up a little bit, nurse her nurse her wounds and 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 give her some you know encourage I mean encouraging. Some love. He's showing her some love. Yeah. And in that moment, they're having a beautiful moment at that time when 
Gosh, I mean, he tells her that everything is going to work out and everything is going to work out in our favor because we deserve it. And you just see the look on Christian, I mean, Christian Slater, Clarence's face that you're not even sure if he believes himself, but he's going to believe that for her. And they're, they're so in deep by this point. Like you as the first time viewer, you really don't know how if they're, they're going get down, they're going down in flames together. But they've got, they've got it. They've still got the deal set up. They're still going to meet Lee. And then we cut to Elliot Blitzer driving Lee's Porsche. Yeah. Okay. And he's driving and, you know, he's all over the road and he's laughing. And then a cop gets behind him. And then all of a sudden, you know, basically uh, up pops this beautiful blonde up, from up, his lab. Up, you know, and you're like, oh, and, and so the, so they get pulled over and he is freaking out because you know what? He's high. He's snorting the cocaine and it's uncut. Like he is like, he's like looking at her as like candy, Carrie, whatever your name is, put this in your purse. They're not. And she is just, she is like, nope. no, no. She's like, nope. She's like, what are you, high? He's, he's like, he's like, please, he's not going to search you. She's, he's like, I'm not putting that in there. And he no. fucking starts. So he starts giving her a hard time. He's like, I'm not going to say what he says, but he just he, he gives her a pretty hard he time. Goes, Everything and you I've know, done for good you. for her. And no. She, <laughs> and she's like, no, fuck you. And he's like, you stupid. And I'm not going to say what he said. Right, right, and right. She slaps him, and that hits the bag of cocaine and just goes all over his face. And you're just like, what the fuck? And the cop walks up. I I wish they wouldn't have cut from that scene because I really wanted to see exactly what the police officer was going to say. I mean, I don't even think you had to. I mean, I yeah, that would have been funny. But man, the look on his face just high. Like, yep. So then we there's get, nothing. Where do you go from there? We get Elliot in. The, he's being interrogated by two police officers, uh, Chris Penn and Tom Sizemore. Now yes. I was reading. Talk that, about a great combination of police officers. I'm telling you, like, I was reading that this scene was completely improvised by the three of them. Like they had basically wow. an outline of what they want to do. And it's, it is so awesome. Like they are like, like, well, you're a star now. Boy, you, you've really gone and done it. He goes, you're going to be, you're going to be playing your one night show for the next two years. You're going to be playing your show for the next two years. And he, they're <sighs> just, they're, I mean, they're just ripping into him and they're letting him know because they want to know where the cocaine came from. That's right. why they're, doing he's this. a pawn in all of yeah, this they, and they, they make that very clear. They're, they're like, you are, you know, you are so fucked. Like you are not oh, getting yeah. out of this. And you watch and Elliot just cracks under the pressure. And of course he does. He's got, yeah, he's not a strong person. And character just, just spills the goods and then the, they, these guys can't believe this they go to their captain and they're telling them the stories and, and the captain's like well yeah do it and, you know and they they want the and credit he, for and it. then he goes and he's willing to wear a wire can you believe it <laughs> wear a wire this just adds another layer so you've got the mob who's found them you've got this drug deal that's getting ready to happen now the police know about it the only people like it, it's it's bu- coming, it's building it's, to this giant head this, of exactly the conclusion that this is building to. It's incredible. So we see them at Dick Ritchie's house. They're getting ready for the meeting. You know, Alabama's trying to put as much makeup as she, on as she can to kind of cover the scars and the bruises that she has. And then Dick Ritchie gets that phone call. He got the part. He auditioned earlier in the movie. He auditioned for it. And there's a moment that happens there that just kind of just gave me chills right now talking about it. And that moment, Dick Ritchie looks at Clarence and you can tell for a second that there's something in his feeling, that he's feeling this feeling, what we're about to enter into. There's it may like a, end badly. Yeah. There's almost a moment of hesitation like, hey, you know what? I yeah. don't even think I want to be a part yeah. of this. His life is about to completely change for the better. And he has that that moment of clarity. Exactly. Exactly. But he doesn't act on it. He doesn't act on it because he's that good of a friend. This movie does have a lot of, uh, you know, true ties to the relationships that you form with people and that you're willing to do anything for them. Yeah. And, and he does that for his friend Clarence. And it was great. There's, I don't know if you caught it, but 
Floyd is the one that gave them the directions to the hotel. They're like the guy that doesn't remember anything. They're they're like Floyd. Are you sure this is how to get there? Like talk about an era where we don't have GPS. Like you have to remember. I was just thought about that. Like that would not even be a thing now. Uh, so well, and Floyd. That's the reason that James Gandolfini was able to find them at the Safari exactly. Inn. And you see this guy that's a complete stoner, like a bump on the couch, apparently has total recall of all things that will end in tragedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Floyd's kind of the catalyst that puts these guys in really bad the situations. unlikely catalyst, the yeah. The unlikely catalyst. So, we get, a, we get a quick scene of the mob guys gearing up. You know, they're now, they're they're loading up their weapons. They're, I mean, we don't even know who these guys are. We haven't even seen them before. Like, but they're Blue like- Blue Lou Boyle's gang yeah. is ready to bust you get, in. You get, you get the cops wiring up Elliot. You know, like it's, it's, there's three things going on actively at the same time. You've and got, then you've got the heroes, you know, Clarence in Alabama, and you're rooting for these people. Like, I'm rooting, I want to see them make it out alive, make it out together, and make it out where they're happy and have all the money they need and they get happily the, ever after. They get to the hotel, they meet Elliot, who's clearly there's something wrong with him. You know, he is not himself. Oh, that scene in the elevator and at the, the end. And the scene in the elevator. Mm. And, and, but that was so smart of Clarence. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? Absolutely. And and, and to, to Elliot's credit, he just starts, he wants the cops to come get him, but he he just keeps saying, I just wish somebody would come and take me away. Some take, take me away. And, and he, he sells it. Clarence is like, all right, you're okay. Wow, man. Chill out. <laughs> <laughs> we get into the hotel room and Lee's got all these bodyguards and they've all got automatic weapons and it's this big suite. It's not even a hotel room. It's like it's like it's multiple rooms and you know it's you can tell it's it's probably a place that Lee hangs out all the, all the time because he, he's got a big projector showing and they're showing dailies from his sequel to Coming Home in a Body Bag. Oh and, yeah. And Lee is just completely over the top, but and he is just in control and he he's trying to feel out Clarence and they're just having some small talk and Clarence is telling him what he wants to hear. You know, I'm a big fan of your movies. My uncle, both my uncles were in Vietnam and they said that, you know, that was the most accurate Vietnam betrayal. And, 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 you know, he's just really warming up to, to Lee. And he's telling him all the right things. Tell him all the right things. And then Lee finally, you know, before the deal is going to happen, you know, Lee says to him, you know, listen, when something's too good to be true, it's because it isn't. Why don't you convince me? And they walk outside. Mind you, the whole time Elliot's in there wearing the wire. And so the cops are hearing every bit of this. Like the cops heard everything that happened in the elevator and there and fucking Tom Sizemore is fucking going crazy. He's like, I love this Clarence kid. He's fucking crazy. You know, I love that. he's going to kill him. He's going to kill him. Like, like he kept saying he's going to kill him. He's not going to kill him. He goes, he's going to kill him. It's fucking, it's such, such a great scene. So Elliot's trying to, and we have to ma- mention that the wire is attached to his, basically, if I'll say the professional weight, well, it's attached to the, the, the family jewels. Yes, exactly. So, so he is trying to kind of stand by the, Elliot trying to stand by the door and listen to what Lee and Clarence are talking about. For what it's worth, you know, Clarence convinces him and then he says, all right, let's make the deal happen. That gets the cops rolling. The mob guys are showing up because the mob, again, the mob go back to Dick Ritchie's house because they've got the address. Floyd's smoking a, a honey bear. Oh yeah, a, a honey, like actual, the honey. Like the actual bear, the, the honey container. He's made a bong out of that. And what's interesting is these mob guys, they don't kill him. They just say, where is he? And he's like, oh, at the Be- Beverly Ambassador Hotel. Which and- is amazing because this is a guy that doesn't look like he can remember his own name. So the, the cops are outside. The mob guys are outside. At this point, Clarence excuses himself. He goes to the bathroom. He's having another conversation with Elvis. You know, he's like, he know, needs one at this he point. He needs one at this point. It's all happening. The deal is going to happen. And then in come the cops. 
before the mob guys come in, in come the cops. You know, everybody hands up, hands up. Well, and you got sweet Alabama sitting there on the couch trying yeah. to look not beat up, which she doesn't really. But And then she writes Clarence that little note of encouragement, which I think is really important. Absolutely. I think that that's an important tribute to the whole rest of the movie and her never-ending backing of him. What was interesting, and I agree with you on that, you know, what was interesting was when the cops come in, you know, Lee immediately puts his hands up. He's like, oh, you know, but his henchmen, if you will, his bodyguards are like to the cop. They're like to the cops. Fuck you guys. You know, what are you going to do? We got the machine guns. And and Lee's like telling Bo- one of his guys, Boris, Boris, shut the fuck up. These are cops. We're all going to die. And he's like, oh, it's something I didn't tell you about me, Lee. I hate fucking cops. Like, like you're like, holy shit. Like, aren't these guys supposed to work for Lee? Like, shouldn't Lee be like, put your guns down? And great fucking scene. Then, then. The mob guys come in the other door and we've got like a true standoff. It is like a, yeah, it is the most intense standoff of three totally separate genres of bad guys, you know? It's literally like the triple standoff from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, yeah. So you've got got three groups, none of them like each other, and you have no idea what's going to happen. Who's going to shoot first? That's the first thing you think in that moment and the tension that's built in the air. And then you've got Clarence and Clarence is still in the bathroom. Clarence doesn't even know this is going on. He doesn't even know. And... You're right. Like, who's going to shoot first? And all of a sudden, you hear Elliot start yelling out, Officer Dimes, Officer Dimes. And everyone's still yelling, Officer Dimes, Officer Dimes. Then Officer Dimes goes, what? What? He goes, Officer Dimes. Can I go now? This this doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm going to go. And then Officer Dimes goes, just sit the fuck put, Elliot. And Lee looks over and he he goes, he goes, how do you know his name? How does he know your name? And the light bulb goes off. The light bulb goes off. And he's like, you son of a bitch, you little piece of shit. And the best part of that is Lee is clearly going to prison for a very long time, but he doesn't even give a shit about that. He is so mad at Elliot that he just says to him, you can forget about your acting career. It's over. You can take your SAG card and burn it. Like, I just thought that was so fucking funny. Like he Yes, because that's the worst thing that that guy, you, you just betrayed me. You'll never act in this town again, you know? That's, and that's it's more not, important to him. Forget that I'm going to go to prison for the rest of maybe my life, but I'll make sure you never act in this town again. And he takes the, he takes the pot of coffee and just throws it on yeah. Elliot. And that's when all hell breaks loose. It, and it does. And it is a shootout unlike any other. I mean, the couch cushions, the pillows, there's feathers flying in the air, blood. Everybody is completely, it's a bloodbath. By the way, by the way, beautifully shot. It is beautifully, beautifully shot. Beautifully filmed. The, the way the feathers You've got the Italian here. guys yelling in Italian at one end. You've got the cops screaming. You've got the mob guy. I mean, you've got it all. You've got uh, Lee's bodyguards. I mean, it's just a complete brawl amongst brawls and the bloodbath that happens. And, and, Every- and Dick Ritchie, what, is, what does Dick Ritchie do? He literally throws the suitcase of cocaine up in the air. It gets blown to blown shit. Blown to pieces. He gets out. He he gets out of the he gets out of the room. You see him running down the hall, and so he's escaped. Thank God. And you gotta, you, you got to think that he's keeping this all to himself, right? You know, he's he's got a seven a.m. callback. I mean, he's got a seven a.m. port. A well, part. we all know he didn't. He really didn't want to be there in the first place. So so he gets out. Alabama's on the floor. Everybody in the room is is either dead or wounded, with the exception of Officer Dimes. And, and now you got Clarence in the bathroom. Clarence who- walks out of the bathroom and gets shot. Yeah. And it, 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 it looks like he gets shot in the head. He goes down instantly. He goes and down. bleeding from the ear. And Alabama, she crawls over to him. Carrying a bag. And there's... Uh, 
carrying a bag, car- carrying the money. She's got by this she's point. Got she's the got money. the money, and she comes crawling over to him, drags Tom, him Tom just Sizemore's, away. Tom Sizemore's character, Cody, he's been killed. That's Chris Penn's best friend, and then you've got Boris, who's been shot. He's pleading for an ambulance. I need an ambulance. I need an ambulance. Officer Dimes is not having any of that. Now he just walks over and this fucking great line. He goes, "I'll, I'll call you a hearse," and it's just, yeah. it's just, and and this is where it's interesting now. We talk about the theatrical cut versus the director's cut. In the theatrical cut, after Officer Dimes shoots Boris, one of the Italian mobsters, the one that w- won't come out from behind the couch, he shoots Officer Dimes. But in the in the director's cut, Alabama is the one that shoots Officer Dimes. I yeah. thought that was really interesting because when I'm watching the movie, I'm trying to say to myself, you know, was that a conscious choice because you didn't want Alabama to kill anyone? Because she killed James Gandolfini's character already. So... I think it would have had a little more weight in the theatrical version if they would have left it that way. But for what it is, we watch the director's cut and Alabama shoots first in the director's cut. Yes, she does. When the dust settles, everyone in the room is dead except for Alabama and Clarence. Well, you don't know. At that point, she's dragging someone that looks like a corpse. And I mean, he must be moving somewhat, but it looks like he got shot in the head. And you were mentioning. You don't know if he's going to make it. And you were mentioning to me that in the original script that Tarantino wrote, Alla, uh, Clarence dies. Oh, yes. Clarence dies. In the, I mean, in the script, Clarence dies. And then, well, in Reservoir Dogs, they mention the girl named Alabama that's supposed to join Mr. White because in K- Tarantino's original script, Clarence dies at the end. Yeah. And she ends up hooking up with Mr. White and they go on whatever misadventures Tarantino right. had planned for them. But Tony Scott with his, I mean, I would say with his artistic ability and with his directorial talent is able to portray it where he doesn't die. And what ended up happening was he made it both ways and showed that to Quentin Tarantino. And Quentin Tarantino agreed that the version where Clarence lives is better. Absolutely. Because so you you love them. We you, want you, them to you live. Want them, yeah, you want the Hollywood happy ending. No and matter how crazy they are, no matter how fucked up the things are that they did, you... You're rooting for them. So what I really like that they did in in the end of this movie was you still don't know. I mean, it really looks like, you know, he might not have made it. it and at the very end, it shows a beach and Alabama's sitting on the beach with the little boy and he's running through the surf and you hear her talking about how much she, you know. Yeah, because it, you, 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 you're right. Because the speech that she gives at the end much he, completing the circle of the speech yeah, that she he, gave he at the beginning. Up, he gets up in the hotel, like he motions, but you don't know if he's going to make it. No. It, and then she gives a speech at the beginning, of course, the highways and byways. And then at the end, you have Alabama giving a speech as well. And in her speech at the end, she doesn't tell you until the very end about Clarence. And then you see Clarence run with an eye patch on because yeah. he's missing an eye. He got shot in the head or the face. I mean, yeah. grazed his eye, whatever. But he survived. And she says, you know, Clarence often asks me if he had died that day, what would have, what would I have done? And she says that she never likes to give him an answer. She never likes, however she words it, she never likes to give him a straight answer about it. But she said, had he died, I probably wouldn't have named our son Elvis. Right. And And talk about just bringing the movie full circle. And there's that, you know, because you mentioned she writes something on a napkin. She writes, you're so cool on the napkin. And in her closing voiceover monologue, she says, you know, I look back and amazed that, you know, three words kept running through my head endlessly like a broken record. You're so cool. You're so cool. You're so cool. And it's just, an. I mean, the ending is fantastic. I'm I'm satisfied with the way that Tony Scott ended the film. A couple things I want to point out. This is a Tarantino movie that was directed by Tony Scott. From what I was reading, the original script for this film 
was not told in a linear fashion. Like it literally opens up with the last scene in the hotel and we sort of work our way. How, like, how did we end up here? Given what you know about Tarantino with his time jumps and how he likes, especially like a movie like Pulp Fiction, would you have wanted to see a true romance that was told in a nonlinear story? It's hard to ask that question because we've seen the final product and so, it's amazing. And I've, I've, I've read that as well. And I've actually thought about that before. And I love Pulp Fiction and I love that it jumps around the way that it does and it works extremely well for that movie. I don't think that had True Romance been shot in that kind of, you know, segments, that it would have had the same connection to those characters that I felt because of the way the beginning starts off so romantic. And you truly get the sense that this couple has, the way that they have fallen in love so quickly and so rapidly young, true love and have had this commitment to each other right off the the bat with it. I think you wouldn't have gotten that same connection to them had it started off with them fleeing the seeing of a crime. You know, I, I don't think that it would have brought a lot of benefit to that story and the love that the love that I have for Clarence in Alabama. That being said, maybe that's why Quentin Tarantino was going to have him die in the end. That's an interesting way. You know what? I, I I really don't have anything to second that because the way you just explained it is perfect. Like, I agree with you. Like, we become so fully invested in these two characters rather quickly. Like I said, it's 20 minutes before anything really like crazy happens. And these are not Let's be honest. These are not good people. They're good for each other and they're kind to each other, but they're, you know, they've killed people, you know, like, you know, they had to in their life. They had to, but it's interesting. Well, <laughs> I, I think, I think they're, they're the true definition of what we would call the anti, anti-hero, you know, they're, but we root for them. We want them to, we want the Hollywood ending for well, them. Well, they, they're able to maintain such an innocence. Toward an innocence towards love and life, even enthralled in all the drama and and murder and g- drugs and crime and craziness, they maintain this innocence throughout the whole movie. You know, at, even at the end scene when we were talking about towards the end after Alabama kills James Gandolfini's character and he's nursing her and she says, you know, he says, if we could go anywhere in the world, where do you want to go? And she goes, Cancun, you know, with her big lip and she's saying it through... A, a broken face and he says cancun she says yeah it just has a nice ring to it like a movie clarence and alabama go to cancun and it's so innocent and childlike still and even that- after she just m- brutally murdered yep. james Gandolfini, that is a is a, a very beautiful and very unique quality in a character in a movie and i think had the movie started out where they're fleeing the scene of a major shootout crime with drugs and guns and blood, I would probably not have felt this, the same innocence about that character as I do the way that Tony Scott directed it. I, I agree with you. Very well said. So that's True Romance. That's your favorite movie of all time. It is my favorite movie of all time. And it is easily, we know my favorite movie, but I, I will tell you that this is obviously number two or number three on my list. Yeah, I know that movie for me is... 100% the total package. It, There's nothing that it doesn't cover or touch on as far as there's romance, there's violence, there's humor, there's exciting parts and funny parts and roller coasters and sex scenes and phone booths and it's beautiful. Great cars, great music. Yeah. And the costumes are amazing. I love the sunglasses. So to to wrap it up, it's the perfect desert island movie. It's my num. It would be my number one pick if I could 
yeah, that's my Desert Island movie. Outstanding. So, Kristen, if people want to follow you on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Flosshair. Outstanding. If you want to follow this show on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler Show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler. There's also an Instagram page, which is the Dana at the Dana Buckler Show. You can email the show with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. So, Kristen, what do you think? Should we keep the Tarantino thing going? I think so. Right. I'm excited to talk about Reservoir Dogs. All right. Well, then, listeners, I think you just got a sneak peek of probably what we're going to be looking at next. So, Kristen, thank you so much for being on the show again. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. It was great to talk about your favorite movie. It was great to talk about my favorite movie with you. Outstanding. So, you're going to be back really soon, and I'm looking forward to it. So, As am I. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.